Hello, Mountain. It's good to see everybody. Glad you're with us. Can we just say hello to everyone at all the campuses? Kind of give them a welcome and a greeting. We're talking about Edgewood, Bel Air, Mountain Road, Abingdon, online. Glad you're with us. Whoever you are, my name's Ben, one of the pastors here. You probably remember this. Uh, it was April of 2010. There was a BP oil rig out uh, in the Gulf of Mexico that had this huge explosion, and it resulted in this leak where thousands of gallons of this crude oil just started seeping into the ocean. You remember that? It, it became the world's largest accidental oil spill with over 210 million gallons of oil going out into the ocean. Here's actually an aerial view of that oil, and you can just kind of see the seepage there in, in that water. It had a terrible impact, of course, on the habitat, on, on uh, on wildlife, marine life, and that kind of thing. Like three years later, in, in the sh- uh, shores of Louisiana, they were still finding like five million pounds of oily sludge from the beaches there. And so you can just imagine that uh, you know, impact on the dol- the dolphins were, were dying in record numbers, and baby tuna fish were born with these you know, uh, deformities, and it was bad on the, the oysters and the coral and the turtles and, and so many things. Here's a picture of a, of a white pelican uh, of the sort that lived down in that area. Beautiful bird, you know, pristine with those nice white feathers and all. Uh, but, but here are a couple pictures of that same kind of pelican after the oil spill. And they found these birds by the thousands like that, just sort of covered. Sort of disturbing even to look at and think about, isn't it? These birds just soiled in that gook. And, it, and it's not just the wings, you know, that got a little stuff on the feathers. It was like... They were breathing that stuff. They were eating the fish that were contaminated. Uh, now the whole problem is not just its feathers. It's on the inside of it, you know. And you just begin to wonder, you know, are they ever going to be able to clean something like that up? You, know, you get a bird like that. What do you do, you know? And I got to thinking about that. And it struck me, you know, that that's so much like what life on this planet is like. <laughs> For all of us. It got, God created this, this beautiful place. But then this ugly, oily stuff has seeped into everything. It's called, it's, the Bible's name for it is sin. And it's leaked all over us and it's everywhere and it's on us, it's around us, it's even in us. No. And so it affects everything. Nations, war, racism, rages, uh, bigotry, thrives, jealousy, uh, struggle, poverty, right? Crime. Uh, the list goes on. Fear, drugs, divorce, depression, all of it. It's everywhere. And, and it's like we're all sort of like that bird. And nobody can say, well, well not me. You know, there's no dirt on me, you know. I'm not part of the problem, or I don't know, nothing on me, you know, so I'm not even religious. I don't care if you're religious or not, you still got oil on you. Or I'm super religious. It's like, well, I don't care. That doesn't change anything either. If we stop and think about it, every one of us realize that it's almost like this selfishness DNA is kind of like hardwired into our, our, our human identity at this point. And so everything is sort of tainted, even, rela- even something as beautiful, like our pleasures and, you know, get twisted now. And uh, even something like a relationship that's meant to be life-giving can get tricky and slippery and slimy because of sin. 
Anyway, who, who among us can't think of stuff we've done, you know? You think of stuff you've done that you've done to hurt someone somewhere along the line or some act of selfishness along the way or angry outburst or an act of unkindness, right? The harm we've caused others, jealousy, lustful thoughts and things done in the secret. It's not just the things we've done, it's the things we've left undone, the things that were right that we should have done that we didn't do. You ever feel like you just wish you could undo some things from the past or go back and have another shot? Of course, we all do. We all do. For some of us, the thing we regret is, is not even 48 hours old, right? We're all here kind of like that bird soiled with dirty spots on our soul. Spiritually, we're just not where we want to be. And so the question becomes, you know, can we ever, like can that bird get clean? Yeah, that's one thing, but can we ever get clean, you know? Can we ever get right so that relationships are just pure and good again? Can, can we ever get right so we can stand before a holy God and be pure and clean? It's not just a religious question. It's a question I think all of us have. And so we're going to dive into that question about how could we ever be clean again? And we're going we're gonna to use Mark. Mark, the gospel. He's telling the good story of Jesus. So he, he's, he's got this Peter and some other eyewitnesses. He's collected the stories. And he's going to help us see Jesus with fresh eyes like we've never seen him before. And so we're going to focus on three stories from within the bigger story of Jesus today. Incidents in the life of Jesus that can help us know how to deal with the stain on, on the soul of each one of us. Three stories that will help us learn how, to, how we can answer that question about whether we can get clean or not. So let's dive in. Chapter 1 is right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And so he's, he's uh, moving around in an area called Galilee. Galilee. And so we look at Mark chapter 1 verse 40. It says this. A man with leprosy came to him, Jesus. And begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. You see how desperate this guy is? He's, he's, a, he's a leper. And so lepers, lepers in that culture were ceremonially unclean. They were defiled. They were impure. They had stuff on them. That meant they could not be around other people because then other people would get contaminated. And they couldn't go to the temple to worship God. They had to keep their distance and they were shunned in that society. So you would, you would literally be pulled away from your family. You go live in a little cohort of other sinful, defiled lepers. And you would, you ever heard of a leper colony? Well, that's, uh, they would travel around together. And, and when they had to go to town, they were required to ring a bell and warn everyone, yelling, unclean, unclean, here we come, because we don't want to touch anybody or get anyone to touch us. So, so that's what you were if you were, un, uh, if you were a leper. If, someone, if, if you touched a leper, you became unclean and defiled yourself and had to go through a bunch of, of, of stuff to get clean again. But a leper could never really accomplish that because they were untouchable. One of the things you might notice in the Gospel of Mark is there's really only two groups of people that really seem to understand who Jesus is. There's only like two groups of people that really accept him for who he is and, and, and receive him. You know who they are? It's not, it's not the crowds because they kind of like, they love him at first, but they kind of, you know, crucify him at the end. And, and then it's not even the disciples because they, they're most of the time like not understanding who Jesus really is yeah, until after the resurrection. And it's not, it's, it's not even his own family, right? Because they, they didn't accept him even in Nazareth. You know who the two groups of people who really accept and receive Jesus? The demons and the desperate. That's it. 
The demons, as we saw last week, you know, they, they know who Jesus is right away. And the guy who was set clean from the demon, he's like, man, he's all about Jesus. And they're tight after that. And the desperate, those who are broken, who have a real need, who see a problem, who come begging on their knees, Jesus always has a place in his heart for that. And he receives this guy because he always does something beautiful for someone who comes broken like that. You want to you get close to Jesus, look in the mirror and acknowledge the oil on you and, and come to Jesus with, a, with an open heart and, and good things will happen. So this guy comes and he says, Jesus, will you make me clean? If you're willing, I know you could. It's not can you make me clean. He knows he can. But he's just like, I doubt, I doubt you'll want anything to do with me, Jesus, because I'm one of those. You ever felt that way? <laughs> you ever kind of felt like maybe something you've done or who you have become, the sin stain that's on you and now a part of you has blemished you in such a way that if people really knew, they'd consider you untouchable and they wouldn't want anything to do with you. Like you wouldn't even blame God if he just said, I am not touching that one. No thanks. This is one of the reasons I think we keep our distance from God. Because we feel like it's, the the, the oil is so much a part of who we are now that we're too dirty even for God. That's how this guy felt. I know you can. I don't know if you're willing would you make me clean? Verse 41, Jesus is moved with compassion. And so he reaches out his hand and he touches this bandaged up leprous man and he says, I am willing, be clean. Be clean. Don't miss the radical thing that's going on here because this guy, this guy had touched his last human being. He was never to have human contact again. Think about that. Just wrapped up in these bandages covering those sores. He, he would, this guy would never shake hands with his buddy at the market. This guy would never hug his dad. This guy would never have his little daughter on his lap, would never caress the cheek of his wife ever again. And Jesus reaches past all that impurity and uncleanness and defilement and touches him and says, I am willing with compassion. He says, you can be clean. Verse 42, immediately the leprosy left him. He's clean. It's a radical rewrite of the rules. Because you see what happened is, the rules go like this. If you touch something that's unclean, oh, now you get dirty. Unless you're Jesus. And then when you touch something dirty, you don't get dirty. It gets clean. Pretty cool reversal, right? Jesus has so much power and purity in him that the dirt doesn't rub off on him. He has the, the goodness to sort of reverse the polarity there. And everything he touches gets clean again listen to me my friend it doesn't matter how dirty you are jesus can make you clean it does not matter how dirty you are jesus can make you clean again in fact sometimes i think it's when we are finally ready to look in the mirror and see the oil for what it is and acknowledge and become one of the desperate people acknowledge that we are broken and stained and when we feel our most untouchable, unlovely, ugly selves, that's the moment we're ready for Jesus. And if we'll say the same thing this guy said, like, Jesus, I know you can, will you make me clean? He will say the same thing to you that he said to that guy. Yes, I'm willing. And out of his compassion, he will touch you in the place where you are most fouled up. 
And that place, even that place can become clean. Friends, this is the good news right here in chapter one of Mark's story. This is a good story. It's not just about some guy getting over leprosy. It's about what Jesus came to do, set us free. You can become clean. It doesn't matter how dirty you are. That's the first story. There's another story here. Another story in the next chapter. Jesus is moving on. His popularity is growing. He goes over to Capernaum. In fact, he tries to set up shop and start teaching some friends in a house, but all of a sudden everybody hears and they pile in. It's like standing room only out the door, right? And so chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd. So they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Here's another guy who's desperate. So he's probably going to get the attention of Jesus. And he's also determined, and apparently one of his buddies must be an engineer, because they figure out how to get on the roof and do the math and measure it out and figure it out right with Jesus, and they start digging through. Can you imagine Jesus talking, and all of a sudden clods of dirt and tile and thatch start coming down and dust flying, and people's like, what? And then the Cirque du Soleil, here comes this guy, you know, lowering him down on some kind of pulley jury rig or whatever, and there he is, and he comes right down there in front of Jesus, and this guy's got a problem. He can't walk. He's been on this mat for who knows how long. And, and, and that's his problem. Everyone's got a problem. What's your problem? This guy can't walk. What's your problem? That thing that, it, you know, if you had friends who lowered you down in front of Jesus and you got a front row seat in front of Jesus and he, he, and he was looking at you for a second and you could ask him, Jesus, could you take care of this for me? That's your problem. What, what's your problem? What would you ask Jesus to do for you? For some, it might be like a money thing. Like, Jesus, I hate to even ask this, but I know you could take care of this. Things are so bad right now. Could you just do something about that? What's your problem? It might be a relationship struggle or something in your marriage or one of your kids is, needs, a, needs some help or a parent who's really sick or is an issue at work or, or Jesus, could you give me success in my career? Jesus, could you find me a spouse? Jesus, could you make me happy? We all got a problem. And for this guy, it's he's paralyzed. Legs don't work. Can't walk, can't contribute. Now, you notice what Jesus says to him? He doesn't say, well, first of all, it's very rude what you've just done. And I hope you have insurance. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, nor does he say what we expect him to say, which is, rise up and walk. He doesn't say that. You ever really notice what Jesus says here? Look at Mark chapter 2, verse 5. Seeing their faith, I think the faith of these friends and this man, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. That's kind of funny in a way. I mean, I can imagine the guy like lying there on the ground going, hmm, thanks for that. But I'm here for my legs. Can you do anything about the walking part? Because that's his problem, right? that's, That's what he came there for. Can I get some help with that, with my problem? 
But it's like Jesus knows something he doesn't know. Jesus knows that he has a much bigger problem than what he thinks his problem is. He's got a much bigger problem than his physical condition. It's like Jesus wants him and maybe all of us to know that whatever suffering, whatever problem we have in front of us that presents itself, the thing we would probably be most apt to go ask Jesus to take care of, might not be our big problem because Jesus wants us to know you've got a bigger problem. Here it is. It's your sin. It's the stain on your soul. And I'm going to take care of that problem. We'll get around to this lesser stuff like the fact you can't walk. I can do that too, but Jesus says if that's all I do is fix your legs, that is not getting anywhere near deep enough to what you really need. Because we need to know if we can be clean, if we can be healed before a holy God. And Jesus says, I can take care of that one. I'm more than a genie in a bottle for you. I'm more than a sort of miracle worker. I want to do more. Friends, listen, our biggest need is not the problem in front of you. It's the sin inside of you. Our biggest need is not the problem in front of you. It's the sin inside of you. So Jesus is going to make it clear to them, I'm not just going to heal your body because if I did that and you went away, you might be able to run around a little faster, but you still got a big problem. Friends, don't, don't, fall for, don't fall for the notion that if you could have the thing, you know the thing, the thing, that if you just had it, everything would be great. Like if I had the thing, if I got that prayer answer, if this thing happened, whoa, then life would be great. I wouldn't be unhappy anymore. If I, could, if I could just have that success, if I had that girl, that guy, that job, that paycheck, if I could, if I could just land you know, that situation, then my deepest wish, then everything would be great. I would be okay. I wouldn't be mediocre anymore. I, I, I wouldn't be scared. I wouldn't be sad. I wouldn't be lonely. See, if that's the thing. What's your the thing? It's the same, probably the answer to your problem. That's probably the thing. And the thing is we can make the thing an idol. We can make it our savior. And here's what happens. If it never comes, then we stay miserable our whole life because I never got the thing. And if it does come, we discover that the thing doesn't deliver what we thought it would. And we still are the same miserable, empty people we were before because the thing can't deliver you because the thing is a really bad savior. And Jesus says your biggest need is for a savior, someone who's more than a genie in a bottle, more than somebody who can do a little magic trick for you so you can get back on your feet, back to running your life the way you want to. What you need is a savior who can solve the inner problem of your wickedness and your sin and can get you on a right standing with God. And I can do that for you. I want to be your savior. So your sins are forgiven. And when, by the way, he said those words, your sins are forgiven, the religious leaders were standing around watching it going, hey, wait a second. Only God can forgive sins. Are you, say, are you saying you're, and Jesus is like. Because <laughs> he's not just a miracle worker blowing through town who can make people walk, who can solve your problem, who can give you that job, who can put a check in your mailbox. He's much more than a miracle worker. He's the son of God who wants to be your savior. That leads us nicely to the third story. To the third story. I'm going to put this away because someone said I look like Linus when, I, when I'm up here waving this around. Like my little blankie. The third story. 
the third episode, over in Mark chapter 7. Here's the principle. We, we never really get clean from the outside in, but always only from the inside out, and only Jesus can do that. So when we talk about getting clean, we always come up with these external solutions, these things that we think we're going to kind of do on the outside to sort of clean us up or make us look better or things we're going to perform or do that will sort of earn our way back or somehow clean us up. But it doesn't work that way. What we need is a real purging, a real cleansing that will help us actually stand right, pure, and clean before God. And that only happens from like the inside out, and you can't do that to yourself. Only Jesus can do that. In the, in the biblical period from the Old Testament, they had all these um, laws God gave them about cleanliness. Like you couldn't touch a dead body or a dead animal or, you know, if there was bodily discharge. Certain things became unclean. You, certain meats you couldn't touch and foods you couldn't eat. There was, if there was mildew, you couldn't touch that. And it was like you would become unclean, ritually impure. You'd be considered kind of dirty that way. And that meant you couldn't go to the temple and connect with other people and this kind of thing. And and I think God gave these laws as a kind of like visual aid, if you will, to remind us that we are spiritually and morally unclean before such a pure and holy God. And to enter such a God's presence as that, we would need some kind of spiritual cleansing, some kind of purification to happen. And so that's why these laws were given. And I think we still have a a vestige of that today. I mean, if you go and you have a really important meeting with some important, the CEO of the company, you're going to go to lunch or you're going to have a hot date or you you, you have a big interview or something, what do you do? Well, you take a shower. You get rid of your body odor, I hope. You know, you you comb your hair. You you don't go in there with spaghetti stains on your shirt and, and broccoli in your teeth. Because you're, you're getting ready. And I think there's, there's the same kind of idea that spiritually and morally you needed to get prepared and ready and clean before a holy and pure God. Now, the religious leaders in those days then added even some more sort of rules and laws to all of the ones in the Bible because they just got carried away with it. Because if, if a little clean was good, then a lot of clean was better. And it got all carried away. Mark chapter 7, verse 4 verses read like this. One day some Pharisees and teachers of religious law arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. They noticed that some of his disciples had failed to follow the Jewish ritual of hand washing before eating. Oh no. Some of their extra rules. Disciples weren't doing it right. Then Mark adds a parenthetical statement here to sort of explain some things to people who don't know the Jewish laws like people like us. And he says, he says, well, the Jews, especially the Pharisees, they do not even eat until they've poured water over their cupped hands as required by their ancient traditions. In other words, it's not in the Bible, but they've made up some more rules. And so they do these things and they don't eat anything from the market until they immerse their hands with water and make sure everybody knows how clean they are. Uh, and and uh, this is, is but one of many traditions that they've clung to, such as ceremonial washing of cups and pitchers and kettles and all this other stuff. And, and so Jesus agrees with the fact that, 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 that we're all unclean before God. He just disagrees with what makes us unclean. And he also disagrees with how you get clean again. Because these guys had gotten all into the laws and the rules and the rituals about external cleansing, but had forgotten the whole purpose of it, which was that we would go through some real spiritual purification that we would get right with God, that we, it would be about the heart, not the hands. 
They kind of lost track of all that. Verse 5, so the Pharisees and teachers of religious law asked him, why don't your disciples follow our age-old tradition? They're eating without first performing the hand-washing ceremony. You see the humor of this? They're talking to the holy, pure son of God, and they're saying your disciples didn't wash their hands right. You see the irony of that? And Jesus can't stand it. In verse 6 and following, he just says, you hypocrites. He quotes Isaiah. He says, he was right when he said, you, you guys are good about talking a good game. You, 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 you honor God with your lips, but your heart's like a million miles from him. You don't know the first thing about what makes a person truly clean before God. And it's not religious rules and rituals. Verse 15, he says, it's not what goes into you. Now he's talking about food now. He says, not what goes into your body that defiles you, You're defiled by what comes out of your heart. His disciples say later, could you explain that one more time? Jesus says in verse 18, can't you see that the food you put into your body can't defile you? Food food doesn't go into your heart. It only passes through your mouth and your stomach and then into the sewer. And by saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Doesn't matter the food, it's what's in your heart. Jesus is kind of borderline crude here. And he says, you can eat clean food, unclean food, whatever you want to do. Either way, it's going to go in your mouth, in your stomach, and out into the toilet. It doesn't go into your heart. It's not the stuff that comes in that makes you unclean. It's what's already in there. So verse 20, he adds this. It's what comes from inside that defiles you. And we all know this. From within a person, in their heart, come the evil thoughts and the sexual immorality and the theft, the murder, the adultery, the greed, the wickedness, the deceit, the lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. That's our problem. It's not that we didn't wash our hands, right? All these vile things come from within you. That's what defiles you. And yet we work so hard to sort of convince everyone from the outside in with all these external things that we're religious and pure and if we go to church and say enough prayers and do all this stuff it's going to somehow clear our record and all of that it doesn't really solve the sin problem the separation from God problem the the oil problem that's down deep inside it's not going to be enough social policy or education or science that's going to save us it's not going to be enough religion or sort of doing all this external stuff that's going to do it what we need is a cleansing from the inside out. And that's what Jesus came to do. I love what Tim Keller pointed out. Remember that verse? In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Now this is tough for us because we're not, you know, Old Testament Israelites or Jews, but this is really important. Jesus declared them clean. He wasn't saying like, oh, those Old Testament laws, let's forget about it. No, no. He's making a pronouncement. Like he says, like this, he says, I called the world into being. I called the storm to calm. I called that dead girl to life. I called that demon to leave the man. And right now I'm calling the food clean. He's exercising his authority. What's he talking about? He's saying that the cleanliness laws and so much of this, this ritual stuff in the Bible, he says it's being fulfilled and you can enter into the presence of a holy God because there's another way that's going to happen. What's he talking about? What he's talking about himself and what he's about to do. The cleanliness laws that get us clean to go into God's presence are about to be fulfilled in another way. Now here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I've been talking a long time. You've been listening a long time, some of you. I want you to to hang with me right now. 
Hang with, stay with me. It'll pay off. Ray, what's he talking about? Ray Dillard reminds us that in the Old Testament, there's a prophet named Zechariah, hundreds of years before Jesus. And Zechariah has a vision in chapter 3, a vision of the ancient temple where God was. Go read chapter 3, like verse 1. Then he showed me, so he sees the, the vision of Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord in the Holy of Holies, in the temple. So the temple had three parts. It had an outer court where everybody could kind of look and go. And then there was an inner court where only certain people could go. And then there was the inner sanctum, that Holy of Holies. Nobody could go in there. Because that's where God's presence was. The Ark of the Covenant was in there. It's kind of glory of God. It's like, it's real intense. Like, don't go in there. You might even die. Except one person could go in there. It was the high priest. And that one high priest could go in there one day out of the year. It was the Day of Atonement. Or Yom Kippur, when they were going to go and get, ask God for forgiveness for their sins. And so in this verse... Zechariah has a vision of that place and that moment inside the Holy of Holies on that special day of atonement, Yom Kippur, and he sees Joshua, the high priest, standing there. That's what's going on. And, and, and so if, if you read a bunch of stuff in the Old Testament, you'll learn that there's a bunch of preparation that happens getting ready for that day of atonement. So for example, a week beforehand, that high priest would be put into seclusion taken away from his family because they didn't want anything to corrupt him or, or to make him impure. They didn't want him to accidentally touch anything. So they took him away. He's getting ready to go into the presence of God and represent all the people. So they want him clean. They need him squeaky clean. So he stayed away from everything. They brought him clean food and he washed his body, prepared his heart. The night before the Day of Atonement, he didn't sleep. He stayed up all night reading the scripture and praying to purify his soul. The day of uh, uh, a day of atonement, he bathed again, head to toe, and they dressed him in this pure white linen garment, and then he went into the Holy of Holies, and he offered a sacrifice for his own sins. Then he would come back out, and he would bathe completely again, head to toe, and they would put new white linen on him, and he would go in again a second time, offer another sacrifice, this time for the sins of all the priests. And then he would come back out and they did it all over again. They bathed them head to toe and, and then he would put on a new white linen garment and go back in and offer now sacrifices for all the sins of the people. And all this, did you know, was done in public. They could all see this. They're all watching this closely. There's this little screen he's bathing behind and, and, and they want this to go well. They're cheering for him because he's their representative before God. So they want him squeaky clean. He, he's going to get them pure. If the sacrifices go well, if he's clean. And only if you understand all that background will you understand why the next part of the prophecy in Zechariah is so shocking. It says this, Zechariah saw Joshua standing there before the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. But then it says, and Joshua's garments were covered in excrement and foul filth and dirt. He was absolutely defiled there. Zechariah couldn't believe his eyes. Like, how could that happen? That can't happen. Now there's no way that the Israelites will, uh, they, they never would have allowed the priest to go in there. Like, what happened? But what, what, we, what we're learning here is that God was giving this prophet, Zechariah, like a, a picture of what God sees when we come before him. Despite our best efforts to clean ourselves up, to make ourselves all pure, to do the right religious stuff and impress God with how good we are. 
you know what? After all of that good moral attempt, no matter what you do, you still got poop on your shirt. And it's enough to lead you to despair. Except that Zechariah then adds in verse 4, the angel speaks up on behalf of God and says, now take off his filthy clothes. And he says, here's why. I've taken away your sin. And then they put on these new white linen garments to represent God. You can't wash your hands enough in anything you do in this life to make you fit for God. But God says, I can do that for you. I can do an inside-out job. And verse 8 and 9, he says, and all of this, back in Zechariah, hundreds of years before Jesus, are symbols of things to come. Because he says, one day, I'm going to bring my servant. Now he's talking about Jesus. One day, I'm going to bring that branch, and I'm going to remove the sins of this land in a single day. What in the world do you think he's talking about? One day in the future, you won't need any more hand-washing rules, any more rituals, any more impurity laws. You won't need any more of that because it's going to be fulfilled. Jesus stands up and he says, it's fulfilled. All foods I'm declaring right now are clean. It doesn't matter whether you're eating clean or unclean anymore because those laws are being fulfilled. How can we be clean? Jesus, Jesus would... Shortly after saying these words, show up as another Joshua. You know, Joshua and Jesus are the same name in different languages. Did you know that? Joshua, Jesus, Yeshua, and Joshua are the same exact name in Aramaic, Greek, and Hebrew. And so, Jesus, Yeshua, another Joshua shows up and kind of does his own day of atonement. And think about it, one week beforehand... He began to prepare, rode in on a donkey, and the night before, he didn't sleep. He stayed awake all night in the garden praying. But what happened to this Yeshua was opposite of what happened to the Yeshua in the Old Testament. Instead of all the people cheering him on, they, they, they all betrayed him and abandoned him. Even the father turned away from him. And instead of being clothed in fine royal linen, they stripped him of the only clothes he had and they, buried, they hung him naked. And instead of having a nice bath, the only bath he got was their spit. Why did it have to go that way? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way. For God made Christ, this Jesus, who had never sinned, who had no dirt on him. He was pure, but God made him to be the offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God through Christ. He took the dirt on him so you could get the dirt off you. He he took and became the sacrificial lamb. He became the high priest. He became sin. He became it all so that we can deal with the problem of our heart through the power of Christ. Friends, if you're still living with a failure or a sin, regret or mistake from your past that you have yet to have completely cleansed from the inside out so you know you stand before God clean, you don't need to do that. We're going to offer a time right now or I just hope that you will, you will seek God now. I'm going to lead us through a moment. I'm going to invite you to sit up and have an opportunity to walk out of here clean. Do more than hear a sermon on this. You do some real spiritual cleansing right now. Can I ask you to do that? Confession is the way we make ourselves desperate and come before Jesus.
saying, will you heal me? Psalm 32 was surely in Jesus' mind on this question. It says, oh, what joy for those who get a fresh start. Wouldn't you like a fresh start? Would you like to be like a white pelican again? Whose slate is wiped clean because your sin is forgiven and put out of sight. That's what Jesus came to do. Let me offer a prayer. And as you bow, can you just bring yourself before the Lord and whatever part of unforgiven sin remains, I urge you to offer it to Him in the name of the compassionate Jesus. Let's pray together. God, we just pray you will help us to find our way to you now. Some of us have been hiding something and pretending it's not there or worse, like it doesn't matter. But it does. For some of us, it's been eaten at us. For some of us, it's worse because we just don't care anymore. We feel like it's hopeless. There's so much embedded a part of us. We've kind of come to terms with our sin. Like we're just going to be a dirty bird and that's the way it is. God, help us to come to you and trust you to deal with us according to your mercy and to know that you can make us clean by the power and the grace and the cross of Jesus Christ. To name out loud before you the ugly that's in us. We're so good at seeing wrong in everyone else and everywhere else except never in ourselves. So help us now, God. God, sometimes confession and forgiveness feels like the stomach that churns inside of us where we're about to vomit. Like it's gurgling there and we resist it and suppress it, afraid it's going to be distasteful or messy or embarrassing. But God, we also know it must happen for relief to come. So help us to purge the sick parts from within so we can finally rest. We don't want to live with it like a weary traveler with a big load. We lay it at your feet. Father, we've sinned against you. Spirit, we have ignored the prompting of your voice. Jesus, we have crucified you again and again. So God of light, penetrate our hearts and get rid of the darkness. Spirit of love, love us because we need your love. Jesus, Lord of comfort, heal us from our shame. Take away our sin. We surrender it to you now. Purify us, God, in the name of Jesus Christ. Purify us from the inside out that we might live free. Hear these prayers and all of God's people now said, Amen.